Let's see here. We want to read Psalm 119, verse 33. Hey. 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 Mouth. Okay. Grace. Man with arms raised. Look. Reveal. Breath. Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decree. Then I will, will keep them to the end. Give me understanding, and I will keep your law. And obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart towards your statutes and not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servant so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. How I long for your precepts. Preserve my life in your righteousness. righteousness. I thought you said pay. It's hay. Okay. Pay. Hey. Hey. Yeah, pay, pay's a little bit later. That means mouth and... I just got a new dog a day ago, so now we have eight, and uh, its name is Pishname, which means um, so who, double, uh, double. Hang on, double portion. It's when I, uh, <coughs> what's his name, uh, Elijah, Elisha asked Elijah, "I want a double portion of your spirit, Pishname," and so it, it, it's a brother of the dog I got. Oh, really? They some people got one and they didn't want it, and so they they asked. Do you want it? I said, no, I know somebody that wants it, but bring it to my house and I'll give it to him later. Itiko saw it and said, they're not getting that dog. So now we have eight. Uh, whatever. Uh, you got a double portion. I got a double portion. That's that's why we called it Pichne. Um Actually, we dropped off the M and it's Pichne. But uh, anyway, here we go. We're in, um, uh, we got to pray, don't we? Yes, we do. I'll tell you, before we pray, I got a couple of names to, uh, to uh, let's see here. We've got to be praying for uh, our dear sister, Lisa White in, um, Australia, who attends online, and then Paul was here doing the tracks, but he cannot attend, and it might be three months before he's ready to come to really? church again. Yeah, well, he's he's not doing so well in his. He's fine. It's just he's the rehab. Yeah, the rehab, and um, then uh, we have a, a letter that came in. Uh, a lady asked us to pray for Tony Smith, and that he's saved. He believes, but uh, she's just praying that he'll be strengthened. I don't want to give away his details, but we want to pray for Tony Smith and. Uh, um, then we have our sister Kim, who I, I have not heard yet how she's doing with her her health, but we want to pray for her. And then all the other people that I mentioned week after week that, uh, uh, you know, just lots of little things. So let's just go to the Lord in prayer over all that. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for the chance to come here and meet and to, uh, to study your word. And what a precious word it is. Uh, just glorious. And uh, we do pray for these people that we mentioned and any others that I didn't mention who have asked for prayers that uh, are out there or that we just know about. And uh, there are many of them, Lord, that are on our hearts throughout the day. They come to mind, and we just want to lift them all up to you now one, one time together. Ask that your hand will be with them. And, of course, Lord, we pray for our president that you'll keep him strong and uh, able to function in his job while the world comes against him, that he would come closer to you, and that he would, you know, yield his life to you wholly, and that would become evident in his administration. And uh, Lord, we thank you just for, again, this precious word that you've given us. And oh, of course, one thing, we don't want to neglect thanking you, Lord. We prayed for rain for a while there. It was very dry in Florida, and uh, you didn't just send a little bit of rain. You've sent us enough to uh, fill up every uh, lake in Florida, I think. So we thank you for the past three days of, of just showers from heaven. Thank you for that, and uh, forgive us for not uh, just 
petitioning you more for these things because when we ask, you sure provide. What a great God you are. We love you, we praise you, and we give this this class to you. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen. That was a double portion. Double portion. That was <laughs> that was a double and a triple portion. I'm telling you, Midnight Pass was literally, it was this deep. You drive all the way up, and, and it never floods because the water just runs off into the gulf or in the bay. Yeah. It rained so hard that it was, the, the, the garage actually flooded, which has only happened three times in 20 years, so... Anyway, um, uh, here we are. We're, oh, you know what? I, I just uh, before we get, we're going to be in Romans five verse thirteen, and uh, I just want to say that uh, the guy that does the website made a comment. He said, "You know, I, I, he mentioned about Romans, and he says, I, referring to this class that he said, um, I, I never really realized that Paul is making a defense from the beginning to end in justification by faith alone, and." He knew that, but he just hadn't processed it. And uh, when he said that to me, he said, it, it's just wonderful to hear the book of Romans, you know, being because I guess he's just read it and not really listened to any studies. But I'm so glad that we're in the book of Romans and that we can go over these things. And uh, the people that attend online, either streaming or that are on YouTube that watch this, their comments are the most gracious things. You know, I, I don't get to see them all, but the ones that I can see, I scroll through them and I, I try not to comment because if I do... There's always somebody else there that'll come and attack, and so I try never to comment on YouTube anymore because I'm just not good at confrontation. But uh, uh, I'm so grateful for the people that are in the Book of Romans that are in pursuing this this marvelous word. Yes. You were going to do some kind of a chart. I was going to, and I I thought about it. I was going to do the chart, and we're not going to do that this week. And I'm going to tell you why. It's because predestination and election actually come into Paul's writings in chapter eight. And I thought, if I do that now, because I, I actually was going to make the whole class of that today, and about 10 minutes before I started doing the notes for it, I said, you know what? I, I want to not get ahead of myself, because if I do, then when we get to chapter 8, it's not going to have the same effect. And somebody so, might miss it. And somebody might miss it, that's right. And so we're going to do that chart, and I, I, I'm glad you brought that up, because that was on my mind. First thing, after I got done with all of my part-time jobs this morning, I got home, and I said, I need to do that, and then I... I, I don't want to preempt Paul's... It goes back to Mike's comments. He's making a logical defense, an orderly defense, and for me to jump in and do that now would not be a good thing, I think, yeah, because then I'd be preempting what he, the order he has. Yes. So, um, okay, we're in 513. You just go right ahead. Some of the class will be over in Israel. Oh, that's right. You never know. Oh, the rapture might happen. You never know. I mean, who knows? She'll miss it. And that, when are you going to uh, Israel now? Um, June 28th. Oh, we won't be in Romans 8 forever. Don't you worry about that a no, bit. I'll come back and you'll yeah. be in the same you, chapter. We'll be in the same chapter. That's right. So don't you worry about that even a little bit. Okay, Romans uh, 5.13. Okay. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Don't even have to analyze that first. It's so simple to think about. I brought it up a couple examples before, but if you just think it through, where there is no law, sin cannot be imputed. If there's not a 40-mile-an-hour speed limit outside, they they can't write you a ticket. You know, there has to be a law in order for sin or for a violation of the law to come out. If God did not say to Adam, you know, you can eat of every fruit of the tree of the garden except this one tree, and he ate of that one tree, no sin could have been imputed. But the Lord made a requirement that that one thing he couldn't do, and when he did it, sin came into the world. So it, it, if there is no law, 
then sin cannot be imputed. Just keep, just don't forget that precept. Think of it all the time, because what does Paul say? We are not under law, we are under grace. Sin can't be imputed to a person who is under grace. Can't happen. If there is no law, sin cannot be imputed, okay? Simple. All right, verse 513. This verse is speaking about the law of Moses. He fulfilled the law. The law is done. Sin cannot be imputed from the law of Moses if it is fulfilled and annulled. It cannot be. Prior to that law, there was sin in the world. This sin was previously noted, as was previously noted, was introduced by Adam's rebellion. From that moment, <clears throat> all born into humanity inherited Adam's sin. Sin was at work, and yet because there was no law given, sin was not imputed. He's going to talk about that more as he goes on. He's already talked about it a bit in chapter 3. Does this mean that the people were guiltless? The answer is no. The reason is that they inherited Adam's sin. Okay? Because Adam sinned, and because sin travels from parent to child, which we've already talked about, we talked about, I think, last week or the week before, then every person is guilty before God simply by existing. Simply by being born, or actually by being conceived, you have inherited Adam's sin, and you, you are guilty. Okay? They inherited it, therefore they were guilty through Adam. In addition to this, there is the law of conscience, which was explained in Romans chapter 2. As he said there, people show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Now think about it. We have conscience. Okay? Where does that come from? From God. Well, it comes from God, but it also comes from the fall itself. Right. Remember what he said in chapter 3? He said, um, uh, let us take our hand and uh, let, let me read it so I don't misquote it, but it's right at the end of uh, Exodus chapter 3. Man was born innocent, and then it says in chapter 3, right at the end of it, it said, uh, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. Conscience. Genesis. Genesis. What did I say? Uh, sorry, I, if I said Exodus, just scratch that out on the video and uh, write in Genesis there. Um, it, it's Genesis 3, verse 22. I don't know why I do that. It's because I'm thinking of Exodus because um, uh, somebody asked me some Exodus questions yesterday, and I'm still going through them in my mind even now, and I know that's why I did it. But anyway, to know good and evil. It, the uh, conscience has now been introduced into the man. He was in a state of innocence, and now he has a conscience. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore we have a conscience. Our conscience accuses us or our conscience excuses us. If our conscience says to not do something and we do it, I hate to say it, but it's sin. And the reason why is because anything not of faith is sin. That's what the Bible says. And so if we're not working in faith, which is against our conscience, which God has instilled in us, then it must be of sin. So, but... Where there's no law, sin cannot be imputed. So uh, make sure we understand that. It, it's uh, one. Make sure we get the, the categories right. Here we go. Um, in the, oh, I read that we stand guilty before God when we violate the natural laws which are instilled in our hearts. Okay, what Paul is speaking of in verse five thirteen, which we're looking at, is the specific revelation of the law of Moses. That's what he's speaking about. So let's read it again. But when the um, I'm in Acts. Unfortunately, I lost my place, and so I don't want to be in Acts to read you Romans 5.13. And I didn't check to see if it was the same as yours anyway. So, for 
until the law, sin was in the world, so he says it was there, but sin is not imputed when there is no law, okay? So, if there's no law, sin cannot be imputed. So even if it's sin in us morally, it's not imputed to us as sin. So that's what I was trying to say a minute ago and not being very eloquent about it. Okay, but he says um, 5.13 is the specific revelation of the law of Moses. Violations of this law are not imputed to people who have not been given this law. It would be unfair to, to uh, for God to charge the people of China, at the same time that the law is being given to Israel, to impute the precepts of the law to the people in China. He says to them, you can't eat shellfish. And they're over in China eating shellfish, right? It wouldn't be right for God to impute sin to them and to say, I'm giving you greater condemnation because you're eating shellfish. It's not a part of the law. They're not under that law. They're under, you know, the law they've inherited Adam's sin, but they're not under the law of Moses. The law of Moses is for the people of Israel. If they are not under the law, then that sin cannot be imputed to them, okay? So, that tells us right away. I'll give you an example. We have um, the family of Cornelius, Acts chapter 10, right? They were Gentiles. They were told uh, that somebody's going to come and speak to them, and then Peter was told, go and speak to him. And so Peter showed up at their house, and he spoke to them, right? And... They heard the gospel message, and what happened? They believed, and what happened when they believed? Holy Spirit came down on them when they believed. They are Gentiles. It's as clear as it can be from the, the context of the book. I don't care what anybody says. Well, they were proselytes, and they didn't eat pork. or any, that, None of that is true. They were Gentiles. Peter was rebuked later by Jews for going into them, saying, you went into unclean Gentiles, right? Well, he told them up front. He, absolutely. That's, so it was known that they were Gentiles, that they were not proselytes. They were not, in other words, their bellies were full of <coughs> pork or of lamb or of whatever Romans eat. There was nothing dietary considered under the law of Moses. The meat that they were eating was unclean, right? Hello. And yet, the Holy Spirit filled them. The Holy Spirit came down upon them, proving that the law of Moses is annulled. It is set aside. It is done in Christ, right? That shows you right there that the law that they were never under cannot be over them afterwards. That's a perfect example of that. Now, those are descriptive verses. Obviously, all of Acts is a descriptive book with very, very little exception. It is all descriptive and not prescriptive. But the fact that the Holy Spirit came down on unclean Gentiles who had never observed one precept of the law of Moses shows that they are not under the law and the, the law had no bearing over them. Now, once again, it says that he was a, you know, a God-fearing man and all that kind of stuff, and that has nothing to do with the law of Moses. We cannot say that they were proselytes or anything that these messianic, um, not messianic, the Hebrew roots movement people try to say, well, they try to move the category over and say, well, of course, they were observing the law of Moses. They were not. It is clear from the context. The law, sin cannot be imputed where there is no law. They were never under the law. They received the Lord, and the Holy Spirit came down upon them apart from the law. Okay? This is what Paul is speaking about here in these type of thoughts that he's giving us. All right. What Paul is speaking of, hello, in 5.13 is the specific revelation of the law of Moses Violations of this law are not imputed to the people who have not been given this law. 
How can someone be held guilty for a law that does not exist? As Paul says, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there's no law. It is not imputed. Once again, just think of the 40-mile-an-hour speed limit out there. If there's no speed limit posted, if the county hasn't passed any ordinance, you can drive as fast as you want, and they can do nothing. But once they say, we got to stop you know, these people racing around, they pass a law. It says the law is 22 miles an hour, and you can't exceed that. And you go 23, then you can get your ticket, right? Until there is a law, sin cannot be imputed. All right? Oh, one more thing before I go on. There's a lady in England who uh, uh, watches online, and she uh, also watches the uh, Bible studies. I know that because she made a comment in her thing. But I want you to know that people are so kind, and I just want to recognize her. She made these herself. She hand makes these. They're uh, bookmarks if anybody wants one for your Bible. And uh, she also has things that you can pass out. They're little tracks. They're little things you can, if you go to a restaurant or if you go to the bank. Those are the ones that were in the back. She, she sent a whole bunch more. She sent us a resupply out of the kindness of her heart. So I wanted to thank Lois for that. Yeah, we use them like crazy, don't we? Tell her thank you. I was going to say tell her thank you because I gave many out today. Good deal. Well, we got plenty more. That's from Lois over in England, and I don't want to not recognize her for that. Thank you, Lois. Yeah, they just came in a box here just today. So, um... Okay, so here we are. If a policeman came up to you and said, you are under arrest for having a black car, you might wonder what he's talking about, right? It's, How can you arrest me for having a black car? There's no law, no law against having a black car. However, if the legislatures at the state capitol passed a law which outlawed black cars, you could then be arrested for having a black car. That's the way the law works, okay? The law of Moses set down particular rules for a particular set of people. When they broke those laws, they were guilty before the law. Those outside of that law cannot be held guilty for such a law, though. This is the error of people that reinsert the law of Moses. This is the big error, and this is what Paul argues against so vehemently in the book of Galatians. He also does it implicitly here in Romans, and explicitly too, but not the way he does in Galatians. He literally is vehement against these people. Let me read you what he says about this. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that you are saved by observing the law of Moses, right? No. Wrong. You're saved by grace through faith, and there is one gospel. It is calling on Jesus apart from any deeds of the law. Here is how vehement Paul is about this issue that he's, he's alluding to here, but he, he, you can almost feel the anger coming off of his pen in the book of Galatians because of what these people were trying to do. He says here, and this is Galatians 1, verses 6 through 8, I marvel that you are, these are Gentiles. He just went up and said, hey, you know, there's a guy named Jesus that came out of heaven, and he <coughs> lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for your sins, and then he came out of the grave to prove it. Do you believe that? Oh, yeah, we believe it. You're saved, okay? These are Gentile people that had no idea about anything other than what Paul told them. That is the gospel. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Judaizers, people that wanted to insert the law of Moses into these people's lives were coming in and saying, you need to observe the law of Moses. You need to get circumcised. You need to do this and you need to do that. And Paul said that is a false gospel. Now here's what he says. It's so stern a warning. He says, which is not another, but there are some people who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, him or the people that came with him, or an angel from heaven. Think of um, Gabriel started Islam, right? False gospel. Think of Mormonism. Uh, Morani, the angel Morani came with a false gospel. 
Even if an angel from heaven comes and tells you this thing, if they preach another gospel to you, then what you have, uh, what we have preached to you, let him be accursed, completely cut off from God, accursed. That is the penalty. And let me read nine. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. That's, that is the severity of somebody coming in and saying, you need to observe the law of Moses. Cornelius' house was saved completely apart from any observance of the law at all. And Paul goes in and he explains very carefully. He said, did you receive the Spirit by hearing the word of faith or did you hear it by works of the law? And they said, well, we heard, we received the Spirit by the word of faith, right? We believed and we got the Holy Spirit. And he said, why would you go do something else then? Why would you go down to a lesser when you've already received the greater? It makes no sense. And that is what Paul is argue, arguing for here in Romans chapter 5 as well, okay? Do not let anybody tell you that you need to do something. It's so important in today's world because this Hebrew roots movement is growing. It's growing. I, I, the emails that I get on these people that are, are so concerned about their family members that have gone off into this crazy theology, absolutely nutty theology, that says that you need to observe the, the feast days and you need to observe Sabbath days and all of these things, it breaks my heart. If they would just simply trust in Christ and understand the simple gospel, they would be saved. And instead, they're trying to work their way to heaven, and they will never make it. Okay, um, let's see here. He says um, uh, later in chapter 5, we'll see a reason why the law was introduced. Oh boy, I can't wait for that. Paul elsewhere, such as in Galatians, which I just read, explains other reasons for the giving of the law. In the end, the law is an important aspect of what God is doing in the stream of human existence. But it is not an end in and of itself, and that's what we need to remember. The law had a set purpose. Actually, it had about four or five that you could explicitly name. It served this purpose, this purpose, this purpose, this purpose, and this purpose. And guess what? All of those point to Jesus. Jesus. Absolutely. All of them are pointing to him. They have nothing to do with an end in and of themselves. As uh, we're going through the book of Galatians, I'm sorry, uh, Leviticus, I'll say in the sermon, I think it's this week, that, or maybe I said it last week, if perfection could th come through the law, they went down to Jerusalem, right, and they took their animal and they had the animal sacrifice for their sins, right? If perfection could come through the law, then what would happen in Israel? They'd stop making those sacrifices, right? Of course. Because I'm perfect now. I don't need to make a sacrifice anymore. If I'm perfect... <coughs> If this sacrifice took care of my sins, then I wouldn't need to do it anymore. I've been perfected. But they went back every single time that they committed infraction. And in fact, they knew that they were committing infractions because they were carrying another lamb or another ram or another goat or whatever back down to Jerusalem in order to do it. They always had the conscience of sin. It was always on their mind. It could not perfect them. But if you think of Christ... He is the end of the law for all who believe, then we should have no consciousness of sin in the sense that it is being imputed to us. Not that we shouldn't do right. Please don't think that I'm saying that. We should do right. We should want to do right because of what the Lord has done for us. But we should not have the consciousness of sin and say, I need to go make another sacrifice. I need to get right with God once again. It's already done in Christ. It is already done. It is complete. It is finished. And that is what you need to remember. Okay, that's what Paul is trying to tell us with this, this long theological discourse on how to be right with God. Okay, 
he says, um, it only points to something else, something which we desperately need. As I said, I said there's about five things. That thing that we desperately need is Jesus. So life application, there are different programs going on in the pages of the Bible, which are introduced for different reasons. And they may apply at certain times, but not at others. It's important to understand when something applies and when it does not. If we mix these programs inappropriately, then our understanding of God's work becomes convoluted. The law of Moses, which was given to Israel, is such a program. It applied to a certain time and to a specific group of people. Christ Jesus fulfilled that law on our behalf. Don't reinsert the law now that it has been fulfilled. That's, that's the life application to remember from verse 513, is that the law is done, don't reinsert it. Now, those programs, because I mentioned the programs, and this is kind of just a little diversion so we don't go too fast and burn up pages of the Bible. We don't want it to catch on fire. Let's real quickly just go through those, okay? What are the programs? Uh, let me get out my eraser, okay? What are those programs that God has given us? They're called, it, it's a doctrine called, begins with a D, ends with dispensationalism. Thank you, dispensationalism, okay? God is working out certain dispensations within the stream of time. Now, if you're a covenantalist, then you don't believe that dispensations are correct, all right? Covenantalists say that God is working through covenants to people, okay? I don't agree with that. I think that's entirely wrong. It means that the church has replaced Israel and that Israel has no part or portion in God's future redemptive plans. That's not correct. The Bible shows us that dispensationalism or dispensations of time is correct. So what is the first one? That's right. It's the dispensation of innocence. Okay, I'm just going to write them down now, and then we'll talk about them just for a few minutes, and we'll get back to work. I just want to remind you all of what the dispensations are. The next one is, begins with a C, ends with conscience. Okay, conscience, that's right. All right, and then the next one is government. Thank you, G-O-V-E-R-N-M-E-N-T. Now, what I should have done, I'm going to have to do it down here again, or I'll erase this, and I'll show you again, just so you can see how they work around each other. Government, the next one is? That's coming soon to a dispensation near you, but it's first it's promise. Okay, that's to Abraham, right? And then you have? All right, and then after the law? Uh, church. Grace, church age, okay? And then the last dispensation? Millennium. Millennium. Okay, so you got your seven dispensations. Smartest class in the world. I know my handwriting's getting a little funky there, but that's okay. Um, okay, so we got innocence, conscience, government, promise, law, grace, and millennium. Those are the seven dispensations which God is working out, and you say, oh, but what about the tribulation period? Does that belong to grace or the millennium? It doesn't belong to either. Tribulation. Where does this one belong to? It's not grace. Very good. You guys are great. Um, now let me erase this again. It goes, so we've got innocence, conscience, government, promise, law, but tribulation period belongs to law. Okay? Why does it belong to the law? Because in Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27, God promised 490 years to Israel right? To do certain things. And what does it say? It says, let's read it together just so you know where this is coming from. It says here, 
This is just a refresher so you, you remember these things. Daniel 9, and you turn to verse 24. All right. And it says here, 70 weeks, 70 periods of seven years, 70 weeks, Shabuah, Shabuim, are determined for your people. Who is Daniel? Two. Two. So is it to the church? Well, if the church has replaced Israel, yes, but the church hasn't <coughs> replaced Israel. For your people, Daniel, it doesn't say Daniel, I'm just saying that, and for your holy city. Is he speaking about Rome? Jerusalem. Washington, D.C.? Well, you're right, Jerusalem. For your holy city, to finish the transgression, make an end for sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, okay, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Has Israel done this? No. No, they haven't. So there must be something that's going on, which... Paul is, and we'll go through all this again. Guess what? In Romans 9 through 11, because Romans 9 through 11 is going to explain why this came about and what the end of it is. Sure. Okay, yes. With the, the uh, chapter and verse again? 9, 24 through 27. Daniel 9. So, three bad things finish transgression, make an end of sins, make reconciliation for iniquity. Three good things bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, and anoint the most holy. Okay? So, you got six things there supposed to do within these 70 years or 70 periods of 70 years or 490 years okay let's do that just so you know seven times 70 is very good okay 490, 490 years to do these things know there oh yeah know therefore and understand there's something that you can know you can understand if you're willing to study the word that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem some people will place this under Cyrus. Some people will place this under Darius. Some people will place it under Atarsarsis. The correct answer is that it is the command that is given in the book of Nehemiah, 445 B.C., I believe. I, I'm just doing this off the top of my head, so if I'm off a year, it might be 445 B.C. Anyway, um, that the, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, from that command until the uh, 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 to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, who is... Jesus, okay, until Jesus, there shall be seven, uh, 62 we seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now let me erase this so that we, and we'll, we'll get back to this in a second, but we have to show why that fits in there so that you understand why dispensationalism is correct. Okay, it says here, you've got from the decree 445 BC, and this was done by Sir Robert Anderson. He went to the star charts at the Royal London Observatory and he figured it all out. He's the one that named the 360-day year, which the Bible uh, uses. He calls it a prophetic year. That's why we always use a 360-day year when we speak about biblical matters. Okay, 445 B.C. until Messiah the Prince, which means the coming of Christ. Messiah the Prince. Okay, <coughs> There will be... Um, I'm dropping stuff everywhere today. Um, we got uh, after uh, it says there should be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So you have seven weeks is seven times seven is 49. Okay. And then we have 62 times seven is uh, seven times two is four. Carry the one. Seven times is, uh, uh, help me out, uh, uh, 42, 43, 43, 9 and 4 is 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. Carry the 1. And they have 7, 8. And then 4. 483. Does that equal 490? No. no. 483 equals what? 
483. Oh, yeah, that's right. So there's, what's that? 69. Yeah, 69 weeks. Thank you. 62 plus 7 is 69. So we have 69 weeks until the coming of the Messiah. All right? Now, he broke it into two parts, 49 weeks and, um, I'm sorry, 49 and the other one was 434. And you have to ask, why would he do that? Why, would he, why wouldn't you just say it's 69 weeks until the coming of the Messiah? Nobody's ever really been sure as to why that is. But when I was doing my paper for uh, um, Daniel back in uh, uh, college, I, uh, I, I'm certain that this is correct, is that the 49 weeks, or the 49 years, which is the first seven-week period, ends the Old Testament revelation. That's when Malachi received his vision, and the, the uh, prophetic visions ended. That was the end of it. And then there was this 430-year period where there was no vision at all. It was this, it's called the intertestamental period. And then all of a sudden, somebody walks out, John, John the Baptist, and he starts proclaiming once again. So you have this 49 weeks is the, uh, to the end of the prophetic um, uh, proclamations of the Old Testament. Malachi comes, that's the end of it. And then you have 434 years, and all of a sudden, you have John proclaiming once again the Messiah is coming. Okay, so you've got that. And that's just, that's me. I don't know anybody else has come up with that, and it could not be correct, but that's just what I believe is correct. Anyway, so um, there shall be um, seven weeks and 62 weeks. <coughs> the street shall be built and the wall, even in troublesome times. What book of the Bible speaks of the building of the wall? Nehemiah. Okay, it's definitely speaking of it. It's not Ezra. Okay, so that's to point to which decree we're looking for is that it is Nehemiah. Okay, so, and then it says in verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, so we're going to erase all this just so we don't get too much junk going on here. After the 62 weeks, all right, so you've got the, you've got the 49 and you've got the uh, 62, which are combined. But after this period, after that intertestamental period, after that 62 weeks, you have, um, where was I? Um, a Messiah shall be cut off. It doesn't say that it would be cut off at the on that day, it just says after this period. Messiah comes, and at a certain point, Messiah will be cut off. What does that mean, he'll be cut off? It means he's going to the cross. Right. He will be cut off, okay? But not for himself. He's dying for somebody else. He's dying for the sins of the world, okay? This is all very clear. I don't know how that can get muddy, but it does, okay? That is what happened there. And the people of... The, okay, so how many did that leave? We had um, uh, 400... What did I say it was? Um, uh, Four hundred. Thank you. Four hundred eighty-three, and that we were told that they're allowed four hundred ninety. Right? How many does that leave? That's right. Seven. One more week. Okay. It says, after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself and the people of the prince who is to come. It doesn't say that the prince is coming. It says the people of the prince who is to come. That means. Let me finish it, and then we'll talk about it. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The city was destroyed in what year? 70. That's right, 70 AD. And who did the destruction? Titus. Titus, Romans. But it wasn't Titus isn't the prince that's being spoken of. It says the people of the prince who is to come. It's Romans. The Romans destroyed AD 70. But it doesn't say that the prince will do it, and he was there, so it's not speaking of Titus. It's speaking of a future prince who is going to come during those seven years. Okay, it says, um, uh, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with the flood. And till the end of the war, desolations are determined. 
Verse 27, then he, the big question is, that pronoun right there, he, is the pronoun that will set all of your eschatology. That one pronoun, he. Who is he? If you are a praetorist and you believe that all of this was fulfilled in the past, then you would say, obviously, the he is Jesus. Right? Ooh, it's speaking of Jesus. Who is the nearest antecedent in this that we've been speaking about? The prince. The prince. So it's either Jesus or the Antichrist. It's the Antichrist. It's <coughs> one of the two. And that's a big difference between the two, isn't it? So you better be right on which it is. Because if you say, this guy does something, then it means one thing. And if you say, this guy's going to do something, it means something entirely different. That one pronoun right there in verse 27 is the main pronoun of the entire Bible to set all future eschatology. Then he shall confirm a covenant for many with, for one week, with many for one week. If you're a praetorist and you say, oh, all this stuff has been fulfilled and Jesus is the one who made the covenant, they'll say that was the new covenant in his blood, right? Let me ask you, did he say that this is a covenant that's going to last seven years? No. No? I don't remember reading that anywhere in Scripture. Not anywhere do I remember Jesus saying that this is a seven-year covenant, and after that, it's done. Yeah, no, it's still going on today, 2,000 years later. So, it's not a seven-year covenant. It's the new covenant, and it's a permanent one. It's the Antichrist. He is going to set a covenant, and he's going to set it with a certain group of people who would be exiled for 2,000 years, which Paul will speak of in Romans 9 through 11. So we're going to have to go through this again later. But it says, then he... <laughs> shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That's the one week, this one missing week. So it's either fulfilled after Jesus was crucified or on the night of his crucifixion, and it lasts for seven years and it's done, or, and what did they do? Here we go. I'll show you what the praetors will do. It says, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. So what they say is, oh, well, this covenant is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right? And we all know that his ministry was three and a half years long, even though the Bible never says that. And his shed blood is the middle of the week. Well, that leaves the details of the second half of the week completely left out because they say, well, that's when Peter started his, there's no dating. There's nothing in the book of Acts to indicate that crazy theology. None of it. Okay. It is not Jesus. It doesn't fit. It doesn't make any sense. And they have to force all kinds of stuff into their analysis in order to say that this is Jesus. He started it. He was crucified in the middle of the week. He ended, as it says, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. They're saying that his cross is the end of all sacrifice and offering in the temple and that it's no longer effectual, okay? Because it did go on until AD 70, but it was no longer effectual, okay? That's not correct. I just want you to know that I am completely opposed to that. If you believe that, I think you're a little bit crazy, but I still love you if you're a Christian. So anyway, um, the, the answer is that it's the Antichrist, okay? And let me put that on the floor because I'm getting that chair all messy. Um, it says that then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. This is dispensationalism, and I'm going to go back and show you this chart again, and then we'll get back into Romans. Um, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the uh, wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Okay, in other words, it's what Paul speaks of in uh, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, actually 2 Thessalonians, the Antichrist who's coming and that, you know, he'll be destroyed, and that's all coming. And it's also described in Revelation. But what we have here is we've got different dispensations. I'm going to just write them out short so that you remember, and I can give you a little chart here. We've got conscience, 
and then we've got, I'm sorry, we've got innocence, and then we've got conscience, and we've got government, and then we've got promise. Let me get out my eraser again, because I know I'm going to need this space. That's the seven years old. Don't forget, 490 weeks are promised for Israel. 483 were fulfilled up until the time of Christ, and then the prophetic clock stopped. It stopped. Okay, Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. The Jews didn't believe, but God has made an eternal promise to them. So we're going to get back into the prophetic clock against, eventually. But uh, grace, promise, then you have the law. And then after you have the law, you have the dispensation of grace. You've got this little insert, tribulation period. It's not a cross, that's a T. Let me make it a T so that it doesn't look like a cross. Cause that's. And then after that, you've got millennium. Okay, whoops. I always make my M's with three things. Okay, so... You have innocence lasted about two seconds. Adam fell, and that ended, okay? Then you have conscience, and conscience lasted. God says, okay, you're going to live under conscience, and we're going to see how you do. They didn't do so well, did they? By the year 1656, the world was so wicked that God destroyed the world by flood, okay? There you go. So the conscience, they didn't do so well. Every time you have a dispensation, you've got the Lord saying something, and then them being offered th these terms, and then them blowing it, and then their judgment, and then grace. It happens each time. There's always something going on. Each one of them is, and I don't have it listed right here, and I didn't study for this today. I didn't know I was going to do this, so I'm not going to give you all the, the minute details. But each time, it follows the same pattern. Now, you've got conscience, and then you've got government after that. That's in uh, Genesis chapter 9, where God says, go out, you know, do your thing. And uh, all the animals of the earth are subordinate to you, and they're given in your hand, and so you can rule your own affairs, and we're going to see how you do. Well, what happens? By the time you get to Genesis chapter 11, the people have united. They won't spread out the way they were told to do, and instead they're all sticking together, and they're building a tower to heaven, which is a picture of global warming today, these global warming people, because God said, I will never destroy the world again by flood, right? Well, what are they doing? They're building a tower to get up above any floodwaters in the plain of Shinar. So they're saying, we don't believe God. And then they said, we're going to raise ourselves to the level of God, which is exactly what the global warming agenda is doing right now, or the climate change. They had to change the name again because global warming isn't correct. But they're saying, we will be like God. We will control the earth. We will make sure that nothing happens. We don't need to worry about him and his promises. He's not faithful. And so you have the same pattern following now that happened there. But God did what at the Tower of Babel? He confused the languages. Now, guess what's happening right in our lifetime? The languages, I'm gonna, I've got one coming up in a prophecy update, not this week, but maybe in another one or two. I've given several of these in the past three years. Things where you can now put them in, they're called earbuds, you put them into your ear, and you can talk to somebody in English, and he'll speak to you in German, and it'll translate immediately, immediately, one language, there's one that I'm going to highlight in a week or two of Japanese. They've got this thing, you sit down in between you two, and I speak English to you, you speak Japanese to me, and it translates immediately. There's, there's, we are doing away with God, what God ordained here. Where he said, I'm going to make the uh, languages confused, and we're going to have <coughs> these uh, countries all around the world based on their languages and their cultures, right? This has worked very well. One culture may go in and destroy another one. And those people get assimilated into that culture, and what happens? They start speaking that language. They are now that group of people, okay? But what we're doing now, what the Pope 
And all of these people are doing is proposing that the world goes back to what it was before. Everybody is one society, open borders, there's no borders, we have one language. Even if there's a million languages, we're going to have one language because of the translation abilities, which is right now, it's happening right now in our world. And guess what Google calls their language program? Bevel. Bevel, that's right. So anyway, we'll, we'll go on from there. I don't want to get too off into prophecy stuff, but we've got uh, innocence, conscience, we've got government, they blow it. And so finally, still under government, God makes a promise to one person. Who is it? Abraham. Abraham, he gets a promise. This is what Paul is dealing with in Romans. Abraham gets a promise. He, he's going to do something special through you. I'm going to call out a group of people, and they are going to be your people. We've already talked about it. Genesis 15, verse 6 is where the prob promise is. Okay, and then these people are being Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They're all sons of promise, but guess what? All of a sudden, he introduces law, right? But guess what? These people are still government. All the rest of the world, other than this line, is still under government. They're running their own affairs, they're doing their own thing, they're wiping out each other's societies. All of this is government. But this group of people is law. This is what Paul is dealing with here, and this is why it's so detrimental for us to get stuck into reinserting the law into our theology. And that's why I bring it up again and again and again and again. It's because somebody in this class or somebody online is going to start going to another church someday, and it's going to be a Messianic church or a Hebrew roots church, and they're going to start inserting the deeds of the law, and they're going to condemn themselves. Now, I'm not, gonna, I'm not saying they're going to lose their salvation if they're saved, but they are going to condemn themselves in the sense that they are no longer under grace. They have to observe the entire law, and they spend the rest of their life miserable, and they get no rewards for their actions. Don't do that. It's very important what God is showing us. He introduces the law, guess what, to this group of people. He's made a promise, and all of a sudden comes the law, but the, before the law came this. That was long before the law. It was also before the rite of circumcision, which the law is tied to. That's Genesis 17. Okay? So he gives the promise. He says, go look at the stars in the sky. Thus shall your descendants be, when he didn't have any, right? And he says, thus shall your descendants be. And Abraham says, um, I believe. It doesn't say that, but he believed. And it says, next, he believed the Lord, and the Lord credited to him for righteousness. He's righteous apart from the law, even before the, the sign of the covenant, which is Genesis 17, circumcision. This is all going on, and in the meantime, government is still going on in the world. Okay? So now you have the law, and all of a sudden, the law breaks down. It doesn't work. The people can't do it. It proves itself again and again and again. 1,500 years of recorded history to show us that this ain't going to get it. It's God's standard, it's what he expects, and it's not possible. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's God's law, it's perfect. Where is the problem? Us. us, it's us. God is showing us how desperately we need something else because we can never meet his standards. The law cannot work. You get the same pattern again. You get, do this thing, they don't do it, they get judgment. What is the big judgment for Israel? Exile, right? They were exiled once. It's the worst. They have all kinds of judgments. Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26 gives the judgments. Read them. If you've never read them before, you'll cry at what God says is going to happen to them if they don't obey. In Leviticus, it's in the first person. If you don't do these things, I will do this to you. And then in Deuteronomy, he just uh, Moses repeats it, and he says, the Lord will do this to you. It's in the third person, but it's the same thing. It is horrifying what he promises, and they don't listen. Okay, but that ultimate 
of all of the disobedience uh, punishments is exile. Everything else leads up to it. Eventually, there's no remedy, and he exiles them. So they get exiled for 70 years to AD 70. I'm sorry, um, to uh, 70 years to Babylon. They go back into the land. They still blow it. While Daniel is up there, during this exile of 70 years, he prays to the Lord, and the Lord gives him this vision. As a matter of fact, it says that he was praying based on Jeremiah's prophecy of 70 years. He's confirming that Jeremiah is a prophet, and he says, based on your words, it's time to return your people. And that's when God gives him this vision and says, it's going to be this long until the promise is fulfilled. And he says that the 49 weeks, the 7 weeks and the 49 weeks, which is 62 weeks. Okay? 67 weeks. Anyway, it's 483 years and 69 days. Thank you. Whatever. 7 times uh, 40. Anyway, you know, I, I don't want to go back and read it again, but it was 7 and uh, 62. Thank you. Sorry about that. Sorry. 7, seven is 49 years. 69 is 400 and whatever. Thank you. 7 and 62. I wrote 9. I'm just, I'm all over the place today. Equals 69 weeks. That's what he's talking about there. He actually promises them 70. But until the coming of the Messiah, which is still under the law, here comes Christ, right? He fulfills this covenant. It is done. Once again, Hebrews 7, 8, 10. It is annulled, it is obsolete, it is set aside. Uh, Galatians, I'm sorry, Colossians 2, 14. It is nailed to the cross. This law is done. This dispensation is as done as that. Is anybody going to be innocent ever again? No. no. We have the conscience, okay? Conscience is done. The government is still going on, but it will be done. The promise is ongoing. The law is done. It's out, okay? Now, with the fulfillment of the law, with Christ's sacrifice and his resurrection, we enter into the age of grace. That's going on right now. All this time, government is still working. Anybody can come out of government and they can be saved by Christ. They're already condemned because of their father, Adam. But if they call on Christ, they can be saved. Okay, so I'm going to make that arrow a little bit closer. All right, but there's a time when that's going to end. What is that called? Rapture, right? That's when we're going to be out of here, and then the world goes into seven years of tribulation. That's why this is tied to this. It's done, except for Israel has seven more years of the law in order to do those six things, which they have not yet done. Romans 9 through 11 will explain that. These seven years belong to the law. That doesn't mean that the law is effectual. It means that God has made this promise, and only 483 years of that law have been done. They have seven more years to go. Okay, after this tribulation, how long is the tribulation period according to the book of Revelation? Seven years. Oh, isn't that funny? It's 42 months, and it's, um, uh, it, it says it two different ways. Three and a half years and 42 months. Well, how, how long is 42 months? Three and a half years. Oh, there you go. So it's three and a half and three and a half equals seven, and it matches. So the book of Revelation is describing what's going to happen. That's why Revelation 1 through 3 is addressed to the church, right? It's saying, get ready, this is going to happen. It even says in those three chapters, I will keep you out of the hour which is going to come upon the whole world, right? The church is going to be out of here. Ek in Greek, ek out, all right? And then from there, we go into the tribulation period, seven years long. And at the end of that, chapter 19, um, Christ is going to return with us. And he's going to set up the millennium. Thousand years of peace on earth, right? Okay, and we'll worry about the millennium later. But we've got 
And this is said, believe it or not, six times in just two uh, paragraphs of Revelation. Six times it says a thousand year reign. I mean, I think the Lord's trying to tell us it's not allegorical. So anyway, this is that. Now, the important thing to remember about this is that I, I want people to understand this because it, it's something that every single time somebody emails me with a question, almost every single time, they email me a question with, well, what about, and then they ask something about Matthew 24 or Matthew 13 or Luke 19. What is the problem with that? He's not talking to the church. And this is why it's important to understand. Jesus, I'm going to erase all this. I hope you've got all that written down. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on this right here, right in the middle. This is why it's so important not to mix dispensations. Okay? It's because... You've got right here the law. That's hard. You've got the law, and then you've got over here, you've got grace. All right? Grace began when? After, After his cross and resurrection. So we've got the cross, and we've got, we'll say T-R. We've got cross and resurrection. This is the period of grace. The law was, believe it or not, even though it's in the New Testament, we'll, we'll break it into two testaments. We've got the Old Testament, and we've got the New. But guess what? The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are specifically written for a purpose. You've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written to show Jesus fulfillment. Fulfillment, good, very good, fulfillment of the law. Okay, so they have, he is writing this, in, they are, they're writing this, Synoptic Gospels. They each give their own perspective, but they give the same perspective from a different viewpoint in order to show that he fulfilled the law. So when he's speaking... In Matthew, when he is speaking in Mark, or when he is speaking in Luke, he's speaking to Israel. He's telling them these things that they need to know, because Israel is the one that gets the promise, right? They get the promise. They rejected him, and then it goes into the age of grace, which they rejected, and off goes the age of grace. So who is writing to us doctrine for the age of grace? Is it Matthew, Mark, and Luke? No, it is Paul. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. Gentiles. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. He says it like five times. I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. He says, just as Peter is the apostle to the circumcision. Peter, Paul. If you miss the book of Acts, we'll do that again someday. It's wonderful. We'll have it all recorded. It shows you exactly what God is doing. It is the linchpin between the law and grace from Jerusalem to Rome from Peter to Paul. Everything, these patterns that run through there are so astonishing. I'm sorry that that wasn't recorded, but Acts is this, this transition. John is there for a reason. I'm not going to get into it right now, but we talked about it in Acts, and all of you are fully versed on that. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew 24, no one knows the day and the hour. wasn't speaking to the church. It has nothing to do with church-age doctrine. It is not a rapture verse said it before, but 1 Corinthians 15, which is part of the church age epistles, you've got um, Romans, you've got Galatians, or is it goes 1, 1 Corinthians, and then 2 Corinthians, and then Galatians, right? 1 Corinthians was written when? Before or after the cross? After. after the cross, like 30 years later or so, right? So here's 1 Corinthians, it's written here, and he says, behold, I show you a mystery, it's something that had never been talked about before. He wasn't speaking to Israel about the rapture. He was speaking. So when we start going back here and saying, oh, well, this says this, you know, what does he say to Israel? He says, um, watch and 
um, pray that you may be counted worthy to stand before the Son of Man, right? How many people will say that? I hope I'm worthy to stand before the Son of Man. Guess what? First off, none of us are worthy to stand before the Son of Man. And secondly, we are worthy because he died for us. He's speaking to us who have received Jesus. He's not speaking to us who have received Jesus Christ. He's speaking to these people about something that they have rejected. So they're going to be in this time called the tribulation period. And he's saying, watch out. Pray that you stand, are counted to stand worthy before the Son of Man. He's not speaking to the church. He's speaking to the people in the tribulation period. Has everybody got that? Yeah. Yes, go ahead. Question. Since we will be raptured. Yes. Before the tribulation. 100%. Can we say that the tribulation is for the unbelievers? It is for the unbelievers. Anybody that is a believer, <coughs> anybody who's a believer, people say, well, you know, what about somebody that, um, um, this thing, there is a teaching out there that some people will be raptured and only certain people. I don't want to uh, malign anybody by name right here, but there are prophecy teachers out there that teach that. That is so unbiblical. That is so, what does that, what a preacher that would say something like control. that. Control. He's got control over his people. He can say, well, if you don't do this, if you don't, you know, you, he's got control. It's bondage. Don't ever listen to anybody that says that certain people are going to be raptured. What does, when Paul says that the trumpet will sound, and who will rise first? The dead in Christ. Does he say a certain group of the dead in Christ will rise first? Everybody who was in Christ, every person for 2,000 years is going to be raised, but a certain group that is alive when the Lord comes won't be raised because you didn't listen to your pastor. That is insane. Every person for the two, past 2,000 years that was in Christ and died in Christ will be raised. And then we who are uh, alive and yet remain shall be caught up together with them, and thus we shall with the Lord always be, or whatever. I know I blew that. But anyway, you get the point. For 2,000 years, every single believer who could have possibly done everything wrong after being saved is going to be raptured. All of them. The dead in Christ. He doesn't make any d distinctions or anything. Right? And if the rapture, if my, uh, I, I don't want to say my mom because she's here, but if my friend dies before the rapture, oh gee, then it doesn't matter what they did, but my other friend that lived one day longer that wasn't really worthy won't be raptured. You see that the, the logic of it? People take things and they don't they're not willing to simply say, that is illogical. And God, everything he does is completely logical. It is perfect in all its ways. Every person in Christ, I don't care how bad of a Christian they are, if they are in Christ, they are in Christ. You were sealed with the Spirit. God is not counting many <coughs> sins against them. He's not imputing to them their sins, but he is counting them for rewards and for losses. That is what's important in that. Is that after the rapture, we've all got to go to the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, and there we will be judged for what we did while in the flesh. That's what. But don't mix dispensations. Do not quote Matthew, Mark, or Luke before the cross and say, what about that verse? How does that point to me in the church? It doesn't. So don't even do it. Just that is all scriptures God breathed. All scripture is profitable. It's useful. It's and the law is profitable for us to understand what Christ did. And that's what they're doing in those three Gospels. It's showing us what Christ did so that when we get to Romans, we can say, wow, we didn't have to go through that. We didn't have to do that. And also, we're exempt from that. That is why the law is so profitable, and that's why we study it. But yes? It is, chapter 24 is pointing to the Jews at the, for the time. During the tribulation. tribulation. That's right. It is not pointing to the church. 
at all. Okay. It is not to the church. Not one word of Matthew 24 is for the church. He was not yet crucified. If you want to simply evaluate that properly, go to Acts chapter 1. Let's go there really quickly. Acts chapter 1. And this should, it doesn't, because people that have got things in their head will not even look at a verse and say, well, obviously I was wrong. Instead, they'll double down and they'll say, well, that, 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 that's not. It says in Acts chapter 1, and being assembled together with them, in verse 4, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, here you go, verse 6, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time rapture us to heaven? No. It doesn't say that. It says, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still thinking this. They're right. still thinking Matthew. They're, they're still thinking he is coming to restore the kingdom. They had no idea that there was going to be a church age, that Gentiles would be involved. That's why Acts is such a pivotal book. And if you don't understand Acts, you need to get into it and you need to study it. And you need to study it because it shows you what God is doing in the church age. Why Peter is mentioned like 152 times in uh, verses or chapters 1 through 12. And then he's mentioned like one more time in chapters 13 through 28. And Paul is mentioned two or three times with a different name, Saul, in the first 12 chapters. And then from 13 through 28, he's mentioned like 17,327 million times. And guess what? Every single thing that Peter does, Peter does this, Paul does the same thing. Peter does this, Paul does the same thing. Peter does this, Paul does the same thing. Peter says this, Paul says the same thing. It is showing us a pattern that the, the church is moving from the apostle to the Jews to the apostle to the Gentiles, from Israel to the church. Matthew 24 has nothing not one thing to do with the church. Nothing, except that it's useful and profitable for us to learn from and to apply to our church age theology in the sense that we know that we're not a part of what he's saying there. Okay? So, any more questions on this before we go into verse 14? You could add 25 under there. Again, all of it, right up until the cross. Everything up until the cross. I just use Matthew 24 because that's what everybody's always citing. Look at this, it's time for the rapture, and they get their proof from Matthew 24. It has nothing to do with us. We are going to be long gone when Matthew 24 is finally put into effect. We will be, a, and i tell you how you know if I am wrong on that issue. If I'm wrong on dispensationalism, which I'm not, or if I'm wrong on, which I could be because it hasn't happened yet, pre-trib rapture. How do you know that I would be wrong on pre-trib rapture? When will you know that? When the signing of the peace treaty with Israel, forget seven, the tribulation, because people are saying we're in the tribulation now. There's one theology, it's called historicism, which says that the tribulation is all the past thousands of years, and they, they fit it into how everything is fit into the book of Revelation. Over The birth of Muhammad is part of historicism, and it's all the tribulation. That's not... The tribulation is a seven-year period, and when we see, if we are here, and we see the signing of the peace deal, uh -oh. then pre-trib pre rapture is wrong. But until it happens, I'm sticking with it, because it's the only thing that makes logical sense. And further, I did that uh, sermon on pre-trib rapture from the Old Testament. The Old Testament very clearly shows a pre-trib rapture. It shows it in Lot. It shows it in Moses. It shows it in Elijah. It shows it uh, uh, in Ruth. Anyway, so there we go. Pre-trib rapture. 
premillennium, we're out of here, all of this, all of what Jesus said in Matthew, all of it, Mark, all of it, Luke, all of it, before the cross, all of it pertains to the church. After the cross, no, you, what? Pertains to Israel. Yeah, what did I say? Church. I'm sorry, thank you, pertains to Israel. After the cross, then it <coughs> pertains to the church. Thank you, thank you. Yes? So you mentioned two names, dispensationalism versus covenantalism. This is a covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham. It was a covenant of works, right? Oh, don't eat the, uh, the uh, apple, or it's not an apple. Don't eat the fruit of the tree. And anyway, um, he, that wasn't a covenant of works. It was a covenant, don't do this. Have faith in my promises. It was by faith they were saved. It has nothing to do with works. And covenants but, can be broken by yes, certain parties. Yes, so like, they are broken by right, certain parties. Right, so God will never break his. That's right. correct. But covenantalism is correct to a sense. God has made certain covenants with the people of the world. He made one with Noah after the flood. I've made this covenant with you. He made a covenant with Abraham. But covenantalism does not explain what is going on in the world. No. And if you go with covenantalism, eventually you're going to say, oh, well, guess what? Because this covenant is in effect and Israel is out, then the church has replaced Israel. That's right. So, and it hasn't happened. Romans 9 through 11 will show us this. So we have to be careful that. I'm sorry that my notes are so pathetic, but if you pay attention while I'm doing it, and guess what? In chapter 6, we'll have more notes on the board. I can't wait. It's on baptism. When do you receive the Spirit? What is required in baptism? I'm going to do that then because he mentions baptism in Romans 6, but we're not going to do that. It'll be probably next week because we're still in Romans 5, but um, whenever it is. We're in Romans 5 verse... Um, uh, 14 in Romans 6 um, baptism is Romans 6 3 can we get through the next um, 12 verses today we'll try okay let's go on to verse 14 <laughs> nevertheless death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses even though those who did not sin by breaking a command as did Adam who was a pattern of the one to come okay I'm gonna remind it's a little different but it's very close nevertheless um, death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him to come. A lot, lot in there. I'm going to read the comments, and then I'll, if I, I've got some things on my mind, and my comments are short, so I probably am not going to talk about them. There's a lot in this verse. Um, let me just give you some of my head thoughts, and then we'll see if I actually have it in my regular comments. Um, death reigned from Adam to Moses. We all know that. Every person died from Adam to Moses. With one exception. Uh, that was, Enoch. Uh, Enoch, Enoch, right. Okay, Enoch, seventh man from Adam. He walked with God, and uh, God took him away. Um, he was not found because God took him away. Right? One of those enigmatic figures in the Bible. He's still alive. He is one of the two olive trees and two lampstands in the book of Zechariah. He's coming back to the earth in the book of Revelation. He's going to witness in Jerusalem, and he and Elijah are going to die in the holy city, and then they're going to be taken up to heaven on the third day. But that is who that is. We can get that from the Old Testament, Daniel not, uh, Daniel chapter 12, I believe. It might be chapter 10. Anyway, there's a, a something that confirms that. But anyway, won't get into that today. It is not Moses. How do we know that Moses isn't one of the two witnesses? Because... He was buried. He died. It says it is appointed for man to die and then judgment, not to have two lives. He's not resurrected and then uh, brought back down here to die a second time. It is not Moses. Okay. So Enoch and Elijah. Enoch and Elijah are the best two guesses. Okay. I don't want to be dogmatic about it because it hasn't happened, 
but the Bible does seem to confirm it in the book of Daniel and in the book of Zechariah. The what? If you want to be right, you listen. Yeah, if you want to be right, listen to me. That's right. Um, yeah, but it, it's not. It cannot be Moses. All right. People have been saying that for years, and they say that well because Moses was there on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Right? What was he doing there? Why? Why did God select Moses and Elijah to be seen standing with him on the Mount of Transfiguration? The, the, law, the law and the prophets, and also the living and the dead because Moses was dead and so he's in control over the living and the dead he's in control over the law and the prophets and he says this is my son hear him and guess what all of a sudden the law and the prophets they were gone they're gone they're fulfilled we are to have our eyes fixed on Jesus not the law not the prophets but on Jesus who is the fulfillment (coughs) of those things right that is what we're to learn from that not that those two are the two that are going to show up at the end of days okay two living people will and um, uh, Moses was not alive. He was brought back there. And guess what? That could have been a vision from any time in history. It happened on the Mount of Transfiguration, but guess what? Jesus is the Lord of time and space. All right? He made time. He made space. He made matter. He made all of those things. If he wanted to, three billion years from now, say, hey, Moses, Elijah, we're going to go back in time and we're going to stand on the Mount of Transfiguration and we're going to blow Peter's mind, he can do it. Right? Just because they showed up there does not mean that it was at that time in the stream of God's consciousness or whatever. I know that may sound goofy. Well, no, but even, even without that considered, it right. would have to be because both of them were from long ago. That's right. So that's it, right. It, just, you know, it, it is it, not at that moment. That's, right, ex- right. that's exactly right. However it happened, <laughs> that was just me rambling, but however it happened, it happened. Okay, they were there and then they were gone, but a point was being made. That's what God was doing, was making a point. All right, so um, let me just read you my comments and then we'll go back and if I left anything out of them. Uh, 5.14, this verse clarifies a concept which is implicitly stated in the very first chapters of the Bible, that man sinned and death came as a result of sin. Adam sinned, death came, okay? On the day that you eat of this, you shall surely die. That was spiritual death. Physical death came later, but it was a result of the sin, okay? Man's sin, death came as a result of it. The death being spoken of here, and which will become evident by the time we reach 521, which is just another seven verses from now, is spiritual death, okay? That's the death he's speaking of. Adam was given a single commandment. He was told that if he broke that law, death would result. Let's read it again. That's Genesis 2, verse 17. Might as well read it to you. Um, I'm pretty sure it's 2, 17. Okay, 2, 17, 2. But, yes, I'm going to go back. 16. And the Lord God commanded the man of, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. They're all here. Nibble away. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, so there's the promise. All right, this is going to happen. Adam did, in fact, violate the commandment, and yet he continued to live physically for a full 930 years. I brought this up last week or two weeks ago. Here it is again. This implies that what God spoke of was spiritual death, and this is the premise that Paul writes from. Paul is thinking that. He's not thinking physical death. People will say, um, death entered man uh, uh, through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. And you'll read all kinds of commentaries about people that will say there was no death before uh, Adam sinned. That means no death. Animals didn't die. Nothing died. That's incorrect. Well, how Man, would they know? Because Adam well, was the first. 
Right, but what I'm saying is that, that that isn't what he's speaking of. He's speaking of spiritual death. Death would have resulted. What do you have inside of your stomach to break down food? Acid. Acid and what? Acid. <laughs> you got billions and billions of microorganisms, oh, sure, right. and they live in there. They're called, um, uh, there's a term Good for them. Good bacteria, that's what we'll call it. Yeah. Okay, they're in there doing their thing. Do they live forever? Yeah. No, they don't live very long, in fact. And death was always a part of human existence, or there was a completely different order that didn't exist at the time. But guess what? If you eat a fruit and you put the seed into the ground, the seed comes out and makes new fruit. In other words, things are living and dying. That's just an axiom. You can read it if you think it through properly from the Genesis account, death was in the world. It's not speaking of that death. It's speaking of spiritual death. And that's the premise that Paul is using here. It's not Just saying that question. there wasn't death in the world. It was saying that there was not spiritual death. A, He's speaking about the redemption of man, not of little microbes. Go ahead. A question on that. Yes. Okay. If, big if, if Adam did not sin, right. would he have lived forever? Yes, because sin cannot be imputed where there is no law. And if he didn't give him that, that uh, tree to not eat, mm -hmm. the implication is that he would have lived forever. Okay. And guess what the tree is called? The tree of life. Another implication that he would live forever. Okay, it was forbidden him, but uh, the no tree of knowledge of good and evil. But the tree of life was not forbidden him. Right. And what does that tell you? It tells you that he wanted to know more than he wanted to live. Right. right? Because he ate of the wrong fruit and not the right. <coughs> fruit. And it even says that at the end of Genesis chapter three, it says, you know, let us take away his right to this tree, lest he live forever. And be like. Yeah, and be, yeah, be like us and live forever. So the implication is that he could have lived forever. The tree of life is a picture of what? Christ. Christ. Okay. It's, but why? It's because on the last page of the Bible, there's the tree of life. And what gives us eternal life? Christ. Okay. Everything, everything in the Bible points to Christ. Everything in one way or another will eventually come back to Christ or what he is doing in redemptive history. We've seen at least in Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, and now the first seven chapters of Leviticus, we have probably seen 5,000 pictures of Christ. Yeah. 5,000. Okay, every single word in one way or another ultimately leads to Jesus. Okay, so let's go on. 22, um, though, answers his question. Three yes, I don't want to get ahead of there, though. You're right, though. But go ahead and read it anyway. No, I'm just saying, oh. and live forever. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, you're saying in, in uh, Genesis. Yeah. I thought you were saying Romans 5. Would he live, and the Lord said You'll live, live forever. forever yeah. That's right. So there you go. The answer is yes, he would have. Okay, so um, where were we? Um, 2.17. Adam did, in fact, violate the commandment, and yet he continued to live physically for a full 930 years. This implies that what God spoke of was spiritual death. The implication, okay? And this is the premise that Paul writes from. The physical death that man experiences is a result of the spiritual death that occurred. And that is, as I said, it's uh, Genesis 3 where it says, let us take away the access to the tree of life, lest he live forever, be like us and live forever, whatever. Okay, I didn't mean to say whatever, but oh yeah, it says it right here. I'm gonna read it to you. Um, spiritual death that occurred, God in his wisdom removed access to the tree of life. This is recorded in Genesis 3 verse 22, which I just poorly quoted, but I'm not gonna reread it again. Genesis 3, 22, all right? and eternally alive, now think of this, an eternally alive but spiritually dead being would be what? Satan. It would, well, it would be a, a cosmic calamity is what I would say. 
How do we know that? Because man lived before the flood how long? Hundreds of years, right? Methuselah was 960, no? 69, that's right, 969 years old, okay? The whole world was completely wicked. And this is only with a few generations of people because if they lived that long, then you have a certain number of generations and some of the people lived almost to the time of the flood and they were like the grandson of, of Adam. They lived way, way long. But the world was so wicked within just a few generations with by the year 1656, right? God said, I've got to destroy everything. That's how wicked it is. It's a cosmic calamity. And I've said this before and I hate to repeat myself, but just think it through. How old was Adolf Hitler? He's like 54 years old when he died. And look at the devastation that man brought on the world in 54 years of life. Look at the devastation Obama. Oh, yeah, our, our pre past president, right? 50 million children died since Roe versus Wade. In less than a generation, we've wiped out 50 million human beings. That's right. So you think of, you think of the wickedness that can come out of the human heart in a very short amount of time and multiply that times a guy that is now living six and seven and 800 years. It's a cosmic calamity, all right? That's, that's the state right there, okay? So uh, the wickedness of such a being would continue to grow throughout the ages if we live forever. We would just, like you said, we'd be like Satan. If man can wreak as much havoc as Hitler or Stalin <coughs> did in a few years, imagine the depths of depravity of an eternal but fallen being. If we could live forever in a fallen state, we would be infinitely wicked. I mean, it would just go on and on and on. We would just be consumed with wickedness. Mm -hmm. Paul's comment based on the previous verse is, nevertheless, notwithstanding the fact that sin is not imputed where there is no law, he said death reigned from Adam to Moses. Why? Because all people are sons of Adam and have inherited his fallen state. This is true even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Okay? That's Paul's words. In other words, death reigns in all of Adam's race, even if they didn't commit the same type of transgression as he did. It doesn't matter if we did exactly what he did or if we do something else. We're already in him, and he did it for us. He ate what he should not have. He disobeyed God for us. He was our federal head. We are in him. We are condemned. That's the way that goes. All right? And people don't like that. You, you, with, but, but in, go ahead. in, in 13... Therefore, you already read, but no sin is charged against anyone's account. That's right. That's why I'm saying. But death reigns. If there's no law, if there's no law, sin cannot be imputed. And yet death but reigns. death reigns because we're in Adam. Let me put it on the board, and this will help you. Oh, i got to get rid of my beautiful eraser. All right, okay. Now, we've got Adam, right? And he sinned. So I'm going to put a little X there. Adam's done something wrong, right? Okay. We've got a son. We've got uh, a son here, and we've got a son here, and we've got a son here, and we've got a son here, and a son here. Lots of daughters, too, I'm just saying, right? Okay. Did they inherit Adam's sin? Yes. Okay. Right? Now, the law is introduced here. This guy escaped it. The law is introduced here. Okay? Moses. Well, we'll just say whoever. Yeah. But we'll call him Moses. That's a nice name. Where'd you get that from? Okay, we'll call him Moses. All right? Now, was this person under the law? No. 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 But you just asked. 
he's going to die. Why? Adam. Because of Adam. It doesn't matter that he's under the law. Sin is not imputed to him. The law of Moses says don't eat pork, right? No pork. Bad pork. Bad pig, right? Was he under the law? No. Could he eat pork? Yes. yes. Would sin be imputed to him? Not imputed, but no. he have... No. There's no sin. He, he can eat all the pork he wants, and he can. And nobody can say, I'm imputing sin to you. But he is condemned by Adam anyway. That's what Paul is saying in the, that verse. He's saying, sin is not imputed where there is no law. This guy is under law. Guess what? This is, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Cornelius. Yeah. Chapter 10 of uh, Acts. This is Cornelius, right? Yeah. He's not under law, is he? Yes. Oh, okay, no, wait a minute. No. Yeah. We'll go over here. This is the son of him. We'll say this is Cornelius. Forget that guy because he's son of him. Okay, this is this guy here is before the law, right? He's over here, and this is Cornelius. Is he, can he eat pork? Yes. Yeah, because the law only applies to this line of guys. It doesn't apply to this line of guys, right? right? right. So sin cannot be imputed where there is no law, and yet death reigned because of Adam's sin, okay? But the Holy Spirit came down on this guy apart from the law right right so that's what he's saying he's saying that sin is not imputed where there's no law cornelius can't be imputed with sin according to the law because he's not under the law according to that law Acor adam had one law that's right his one law was don't eat that. don't eat that and we all inherited adam's sin everybody everybody under adam forever is under that that's what he's speaking about in verse 13 it's the people of the law where sin is imputed so these people really got slammed, if you think about it. But guess what? When they got the law of Moses, which they still hold on to today, bafflingly, they still hold on to it. They got the law of Moses. But guess what else they got once a year? That was the uh, day, of day of Atonement. So God knew that they couldn't make the law. None of them couldn't. He, even, he knew it so much that he said, if you don't observe this day, you're going to be cut off from your people. Because... You have failed the only avenue to reconciliation with me because this law ain't getting it. This law is only to point to my son. It's to show you how utterly <laughs> sinful sin is. It's to show your utter need for grace. It's to show you all of these things. David understood it and he wrote the Psalms, which Paul has been quoting because he understood that this ain't getting it. This is God's standard and all it does is it leads to death. That's what that's saying. Everybody else is out here. They're still going to die. But God is making a point with this group of people. He's trying to lead them to Jesus so that when they get up to the cross, they say, Woohoo! We're not under this anymore. He fulfilled that for us. That's what he's saying. Got it? Diagrams. Chosen. I know it's a crummy diagram, but Chosen. what? Not often, not a good thing. No, that's right. And, and as when a person says, Well, I'm a Jew, I'm one of the chosen people, what do you ask them? For what? Chosen for what? Yeah, because yeah. you sure ain't done very much with it, right? right. And the Jews are, and I'm not talking about believing Jews, believing Jews got it. But the rest of the Jews that say, I'm a chosen person, they haven't called on Jesus. You have to ask them, chosen for what? There was a purpose. Example. That's the yeah, you're an example. Go read Leviticus 26. Go read Deuteronomy 28 and see what happened to you when you rejected Christ. But they think they're the blessed They people. think that they are. When they say they're blessings... They say that God has blessed us because we observe the Sabbath, and he has blessed us because we do this and that. They have not gotten that that is what condemned them. But, but they are blessed. Oh, they are. They are. But That's it's right. Like, it's like Blessings turn to curses. Yeah. Blessings turn to curses. Look at what's happened in America, how blessed we are, and yet 
we are under a curse because we keep turning away from him and we're giving all the credit to ourselves or we're giving the credit to the, the stuff we pulled out of the ground that's shiny gold colored, right? We give credit to anything but God. Blessings always turn into curses if they are not handled properly. You need to. Rem that's why I was almost convicted as I was finishing my prayer. We need to thank the Lord for the rain yes. because we didn't deserve it and we sure needed it and he gave it. So, okay, let's go on. 514, um, uh, sin, you got that. Okay, um, why? Because this, uh, people of the sons of Adam have inherited his fallen state, what we just said. This is true even those who have not sinned according to the likeness of transgression of Adam. He ate the, the, the fruit, he didn't, and yet he still dies because he ate the fruit, okay? You've got that. In other words, death reigns in all of Adam's race, even if they didn't commit the same type of transgression as he did. The fallen state is inherited. We only got five minutes, so I got to hurry. However, and despite this sad news, we are given an introduction to another, with a capital A, another, Jesus. Paul says that Adam is a type of him who is to come. The Bible is given to show us the contrast between the two and the remedy which is found in the second Adam, which Paul speaks about in which book of the Bible, which chapter? Second Adam. Uh, 15, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, great, and, and maybe we'll, uh, yeah, we're going to spend the last five minutes, and I'll read you that. Life application, when Jesus said, no one is good but one, that is God, he was making an, making an absolute claim. Only God is good. In order to be reconciled to him, we must share in his goodness. The only way that that is possible is to have that state imputed to us by his merits of an of Jesus Christ who is perfectly good in his being what is implied then is that if we are reconciled to God through Jesus then Jesus must be God right he said there's none good but one and that's God and we're imputed righteousness to be as good as God how can that be Jesus must be God all right stand firm on the truth of the Bible even if it is difficult to comprehend. That's what we're being asked to do. Now, I've lost my pen, so I pulled it out. Oh, thank you. I pulled one out specifically so I wouldn't blow this. That was 513, right? So we're in 540. We did not make it to chapter 6, verse 2 today. And so we'll have to wait on the baptism thing for another week or so. But I want to read you things how we have four more minutes. Thank you. I'm Oops, sorry. Oh, yeah, four more minutes. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to, uh, I'm not going to read you the whole thing because it'll take too long. We will, um, we will go to verse 29. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? That does not mean in absentia. God is not saying that people were baptized for the dead. That's saying if you're baptized for the dead and the dead don't rise, then why are you baptized for the dead? In other words, if Christ didn't rise... Why are you baptizing? He's dead. That has nothing to do with the Mormon idea of baptism in abstantia. We're not baptized for the dead. We're baptized for the living. Okay? Anyway, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantages of it to me? Fighting with beasts? Guess who are you speaking of? People in Ephesus. Remember that? Remember the book of Job, how it ended? beasts and he wasn't speaking about beasts at all he was speaking about men okay what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die do not be <coughs> deceived evil company corrupts corrupts good habits 
Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. Think of the seed, right? And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body. This is all tying us back to the verse that we just said, the second Adam that he mentioned in the verse. That's why I'm reading you this, okay? Gives it a body um, as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another of flesh of animals, another of fish, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory for the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. Speaking of us, speaking of the rapture, speaking of what will happen to us, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, Adam, okay? It is raised a spiritual body, not a spirit body, a spiritual body. The reconnection with God is made. We will be temporal beings, but we will have a spirit reconnection with God. It is raised a spiritual body, not a spirit being like the Job's Witnesses say. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man became a living being. The last Adam, meaning Christ, okay, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. <coughs> Adam came first, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth. It's explained right there. He made him out of the dust of the earth. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, Adam, so also are those who are made of dust. Every one of us, if we die before the rapture, is going to go back to dust. It's going to be melting down until we come to a state of inert dust, okay? And so also are those who are made of the dust. And as is the heavenly man, Jesus, so also are those who are heavenly. Can't wait for that. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we bear Adam's image. We all bleed when we are cut. We all get old and ugly. Well, not everybody gets ugly, but we all get old. And um, uh, uh, let's see here. And so also are those who are heavenly. And we have borne the image of the man of dust. We shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. We're going to be like Christ. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. What we're wearing right now will not translate with us, okay? Behold, I tell you a mystery. First time it's ever been revealed. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment. In a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead, all the dead for the past 2,000 years, who are in Christ, will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal, Adam, must put on immortality. will be like Christ. Hang on a sec. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, and this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, the law, right? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, exactly what we've been talking about in Romans. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Why? Because he fulfilled the law. 
We are not under law. We are under grace. We are in Christ. Do not reinsert the law, or you it's a self-condemning act, okay? Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Yes? Amen. What about the people born and died before Christ? Okay, that's a completely different <coughs> subject, but if they are in Christ, it could be. I'm not going to be dogmatic about this, and there are different views. The people that are in Christ, meaning they were looking forward to the promised Messiah. David, for example, he was looking forward to the Messiah. I'm not going to make a comment definitively on that, but some people will say that they will be raptured with the saints because they are saints because they were in Christ anticipating the coming Messiah. Other people say no, that they're going to be raised at uh, the end of the tribulation period. I don't want to argue over that. I'll get you the verses. We can talk about that later. But they will be saved. They will bear the image of the heavenly man. When that happens is the question. Then it's something that people will argue over. They'll be dogmatic about it. They'll hate other Christians over it. It's not worth it. Okay? It's not a battle that you want to fight. They will be saved. They will be saved forever. Anybody that is not in Christ, meaning anticipating the coming Christ, a person living by faith, looking forward to the cross, will not be raised. They'll be raised for condemnation. But the dead in Christ will rise first. But I understand. But the dead in Christ, does that mean that David, who was anticipating the Messiah, is dead in Christ? No. Okay. What? What's that? Nor Abraham, or it's like they. they some people will argue that. Some people will say no. It, I, it, once again, we'll find we, out. Yeah, we will find out. We can go over those verses. I will prepare them for you, and then we can talk about it, rather than me giving a non-full answer on that. Anyway, let's close it's another in prayer. Mystery. It's what? It's another mystery. It's another mystery. No, it's actually written out. It's just people will argue their point. It's like pre-trib, mid-trib. You're using the same verses to come to a different conclusion. That's what that is. The mystery is revealed. It's just. Anyway, let's go to prayer. Sure. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time here. We thank you for the wonderful surety that we have that we are going to be out of this body, and may it be soon. We're falling apart here, Lord. Even young people grow weary. They lose their strength. But those who wait on you shall be renewed. And we'll just we'll rise up like on wings of eagles. How good that will be on that day. We thank you for the chance to, to uh, look into your word, to share these things, help us to be firm in our convictions, and above all, never to reinsert a law which could only condemn us, but to stand fast on the grace of Jesus Christ and to understand that he is the embodiment of it, he is the fulfillment of it, and how glorious that is for us. Lord, we do once again lift up all those out there that are listening. Brother Nick out in California, we pray for him, and uh, uh, our sister Nance and her husband John, who are going through some trials right now, we want to raise them up as well. All of these people are on our hearts throughout the day and they come to our minds and we think of them and uh, just be with them lord help each one of us to be careful and considerate of others and to just exalt you with our lives and we love you and we praise you and we do so in jesus name amen, amen. amen.